0: To be clear, I think that my view is Trump was actually a very good president, but he fell short of the level that I would want to see us go to. I've said I would use the U.S. military to secure the southern border. I've said that I would shut down the U.S. Department of Education. So in many ways, I think Trump did not go far enough with the very agenda that he brought to office in the first place.
1: That's 37 year old Vivek Ramaswamy, a biotech entrepreneur turned political newcomer who is rising in the polls and has already earned a place on the August GOP debate stage. I'm Margaret Hoover. This is the Firing Line Podcast. USA! 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 The son of Indian immigrants, Ramaswamy made a name for himself with the 2021 bestseller, Woke Inc about why corporations and social causes shouldn't mix.
0: Coca-Cola was among those companies that has mastered the art of blowing woke smoke.
1: Ramaswamy's vision for America would radically transform the US government. In addition to shutting down the Department of Education, he would do away with the FBI, the IRS, and the CDC.
0: The real choice that I think the GOP faces in this primary is, do we want reform, incremental reform, or do we want revolution? I stand on the side of revolution
1: he would also end US military involvement in Ukraine.
0: I don't think that whether this would embolden Putin or not is even the right first question to ask. The right first question to ask is, what advances American interests?
1: After not voting in the previous three presidential elections, Ramaswamy cast his ballot for Donald Trump in 2020. I caught up with Ramaswamy in Des Moines, Iowa in late July, a few days before Trump's indictment in the January 6th probe. But Ramaswamy made it clear what he thinks of the investigations into the former president, and the current frontrunner.
0: I think there is a fundamental difference between a bad judgment, which is an issue for the voters, to take into account as they wish to versus using criminal procedures to eliminate someone from competition in that election and eliminating the ability of the voters to make that decision for themselves.
1: At what point does this go beyond bad judgment to willfully defying the law? Vivek Ramaswamy, welcome to Firing Line.
0: Thanks, I'm glad to be here.
1: Why do you want to be the next president of the United States?
0: I am worried, Margaret, that we are in the middle of this national identity crisis where my generation in particular, our generation, we're hungry for purpose and meaning and identity. And yet we hunger to be part of something bigger than ourselves, yet we can't even answer what it means to be an American. I think that loss of identity is responsible for a lot of our economic stagnation. It's part of what's actually even behind the loss of our fortitude on the global stage. And I think that I actually have a vision of what it means to be a citizen of this country because I have lived the true American dream. My parents came to this country with almost no money. I've gone on to found multi-billion dollar companies, but I did it while also getting married, bringing two sons into this world, following my faith, That is the American dream. And I am worried that will not exist for the next generation unless we do something about it.
1: So is your vision for this country the traditional American dream? It is.
0: I think there's more to the American dream though than just green pieces of paper. I think the American dream is also about reviving conviction in our purpose as citizens of this country, that we do have civic duties, that we're co-equal citizens, each free to achieve whatever our dream is. And so I think that's always been the American dream. Over the years, I think it became reduced to this idea of making as much money as we possibly could, which I think there is nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. I am an unapologetic advocate of free market capitalism, and I have achieved success as a capitalist myself. But I think the what I call the new American dream is really an American dream grounded in the revival of citizenship itself. And yes, I, that is what calls me into this race.
1: What qualifies you to be the next president of the United States?
0: So the fact that I am an outsider is I think an important qualification. I have built large scale businesses. I have created jobs for thousands of people, helped thousands of people through the medicines that I've approved, medicines that I've developed, several of which are FDA approved today. I've taken on bureaucracies for my entire career, the bureaucracy of big pharma, the bureaucracy of the ESG industrial complex. Now I'm taking on the bureaucracy of the federal government. But I bring a unique combination. I do think it will take an outsider who has executive experience, who's been a successful CEO. But to combine that, and I think this is where, for example, Trump left short. Combine that with a deep first personal understanding of the constitution itself, Mm. a deep understanding of the laws that actually empower a US president to shut down the administrative state and the federal bureaucracy that gets in the way of prosperity and liberty in this country. That's a rare combination. I bring that combination to the table and especially to do it as a member of a new generation. I'm the youngest person ever to run for president as a Republican. I think that's gonna be required to reach the next generation of Americans and revive a missing national pride in this country that I don't think anybody in this race is actually positioned to do in the way that I can. And I feel a sense of obligation to do it.
1: You just said Trump fell short. How did Trump fall short?
0: I think in many ways, and I'm learning from the foundation that he laid, the advisors that he surrounded himself with did not even allow him really to see through the agenda that he himself said he wanted to come in and see through, draining the swamp, shutting down the deep state. Many of the people around him tied his hands, telling him about civil service protections that stopped him from firing members of the bureaucracy, from shutting down government agencies that needed to be shut down. And I think he brought in the right spirit as an outsider, really wanting to break glass that needed to be broken in Washington, D.C. But in order to see that through and do it, I think we require a president who has first personal bone deep convictions grounded in the constitution. And I think that that's what I'm bringing to the table that will allow me to go further with the America first agenda than Trump did. And learning from watching that experience is part of what gives me the strength to see this through.
1: So you're saying Trump wasn't able to fulfill his promises to the American people.
0: I think that he fulfilled some of his promises. Uh, To be clear, I think that my view is Trump was actually a very good president. I think Trump defeating Hillary Clinton in 2016 was probably the single greatest defense against the otherwise quasi-Marxist march across our institutions, including the government. I think that that was an important milestone, but he fell short of the level that I would want to see us go to. We didn't solve the border crisis. Yes, we abated it with a wall. They're now building tunnels, cartel-financed tunnels underneath that wall. Trucks are driving through it driving a fentanyl crisis, Mm -hmm. illegal migrants, a human trafficking crisis. I've said I would use the US military to secure the southern border. Take the Department of Education, he put a good person on top of it, Betsy DeVos. I believe an agency like that is not subject to reform. It cannot be reformed. It's now spending more money than it ever did, wastefully so. I've said that I would shut down the US Department of Education. So in many ways, I think Trump did not go far enough with the very agenda that he brought to office in the first place, and that's a big part of why I'm in this race.
1: The first debate... Yes. ...is going to be the first time many GOP primary voters have even heard your name. Yes. They are very quickly going to see that you are well-spoken, that you are energetic, that you have pristine Ivy League credentials, and they're also going to realize that you have no elective experience at the state or federal level. How do you expect that they will... Not categorize you as a Republican version of Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg and his campaign to become president. I out think that'll be easy
0: because Pete Buttigieg and I are fundamentally different people. We're different human beings. I think what they will see much more naturally is exactly what the Republican base wanted in 2016, which was an outsider, untainted by government, independent of the donor class. And that's me. I think the rest of that debate stage will be populated by, let's call it what it is, super PAC puppets. People whose campaigns are principally funded by super PACs that are running their ads on television. I'm not bought by the donor class. I have put over $15 million of my own money into this campaign, hard earned money on the back of my own success. And I am untainted by the constraints that come with being a career government, you know, really professional politician. I actually think it's going to become, I'll make this prediction for the next decade. I think it's gonna become the tradition in the GOP, and I think it should, to nominate the outsider for the White House, to nominate somebody who is actually able to bring the model of the Phoenix to Washington, D.C. The real choice that I think the GOP faces in this primary is, do we want reform, incremental reform, or do we want revolution? I stand on the side of revolution. I think the GOP base stands on the side of the American Revolution with me, and that's a big part of why it's going to take an outsider to get that job done.
1: I'm going to need you to go into why we need a revolution.
0: Well, I think we need a revival of the ideals of the American Revolution. Okay, we so we don't need a
1: revolution. I just want to be really clear. We
0: need a revival of the American Revolution and its ideals. Which That's ideas? exactly what we need. Ideals like self-governance over aristocracy, the idea that we, the people, sort out our differences through free speech and open debate in the public square without elite interference. The ideal that it's not in the back of palace halls or three letter government agencies that we decide the right answers to questions from climate change to racial injustice, but that the citizens do it in a constitutional republic. And we have lost that.
1: But are you saying revolution in the context of real violence?
0: No, I am. I believe in full peace in this country. My concern. And this is my concern is if we fail to let people speak freely, that is when they scream. If we fail to let people scream, that is when they turn to tearing things down. So I do not want to see another instance like January 6, 2021 in this country. But my concern is by failing to reckon with what actually led to events like that. We're paving the way for far worse in the future. And that's why I'm in this race. We need to give people the opportunity to express themselves, to do it freely, to self-govern. We do not live actually in a self-governing constitutional republic that our founding fathers envisioned. If George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Alexander Hamilton, and John Adams were walking the streets of Washington DC today, they would be appalled at what they see. I believe they're rolling over in their graves today. And the standard I use is making sure that if those guys, many of whom disagreed with each other on a lot of questions, if they saw what they see today, they will still say that this is the recognizable American experiment they set into motion. It is not today. I believe by the time I'm out of office, it will be again.
1: How are GOP, self-identified Republican primary voters going to look at what you're offering? as a Trump 2.0 version, a more effective approach to delivering on Trump's original promises, eliminating the administrative state, eliminating the Department of Education, uh, streamlining the bureaucracy, if not eliminating it. Um, How are they going to not think, you know what, he would be a really effective chief of staff for a Trump 2.0, with Trump as the president. What is going to differentiate you, other than your technocratic ability to get it done.
0: I think that's an important element of it, but it's not the whole story. I think I'm the only person in this race, including Trump, who has the power and ability to inspire a new young generation of Americans that I think our voter base cares deeply about. I'm not doing this for me. I'm doing it for my kids. Many of the people I meet in Iowa and otherwise are doing it for their kids or their grandkids. And I think they understand that about 30% of this country became psychiatrically ill when Trump was in office, started agreeing with things they would have never agreed with just because Donald Trump was saying them, started disagreeing with things that they used to agree with just because Trump is in office. And without putting blame on Trump or anybody else, I think most people understand that was just a fact from 2016 onward in this country. And for whatever reason, I'm not having that effect on people. To the contrary, we are bringing young people into this movement, new people into our pro-American movement, who have never come with the GOP before. I'll give you an example in just in our campaign. I've got already 70,000 unique donors. I mean, shattering the thresholds for the debate stage and everything. But the interesting part is that 40% of them are first time ever donors to the GOP in any form. That number is 2% for traditional Republican politicians. And so we're doing something differently that not only Trump, but no GOP politician is doing. And I do believe, and I think our base believes this too, this cannot be a 50.1 election. This has to be a moral mandate to deliver on the kinds of things I'm bringing to, to the White House. Remember, Trump's promise was repeal and replace Obamacare. That was his top legislative priority. It didn't happen because Congress, even a Republican-controlled Congress, did not want to get it done. So I'm not making those same mistakes. First of all, I'm focusing on what the president can deliver. And second of all, I will deliver what Ronald Reagan did in 1980. A moral mandate, a Reagan revolution in 1980 to a Ramaswamy revolution in 2024. That is what I think is going to take to drive generational change in this country. And I think, frankly, people across this state, people across this country are coming along with us. I was a guy who supported Trump. I, I, I was a guy, I am a guy who still respects immensely what he accomplished for this country. But America first does not belong to Trump just as it does not belong to me, just as it didn't belong to Reagan. It belongs to the people of this country. And the question is who's gonna take that agenda further? I think it's gonna be the guy with fresh legs, a deep understanding of the constitution, the ability to win a landslide and bring young Americans with us.
1: Okay, so you want to bring a new generation into politics. That's a very refreshing um, approach. You're the first millennial to run to win the Republican nomination. And yet, one of your key campaign uh, pillars is raising the voting age to 25 with a civics test or military service in order to maintain the age 18 voting age. Um, Given the country's fractious history when it comes to voting rights, why is this your starting pitch?
0: Well, it's not my starting pitch. I'll tell you what I mean, my starting I mean, how, pitch is. How are you going to bring a new generation
1: of voters yeah. to the party by saying, or to the, to the party and, to, and into, you know, American civics by saying, actually, you can't vote until you're 25. I
0: understand your question. And it's a fair one. And I'm, I'm excited to talk about it, actually. Good. We're already doing it. I gave you the evidence. Now the question is, I can tell you why they're coming in yeah. droves. Young people are supporting us. So my premise is this. Every young kid who graduates from high school should be able to pass the same civics test that every immigrant has to pass in order to become a citizen of this country. Amen. You, they gotta know something I, about I the have, country in order to I value it. I
1: asked people it, in that chair why that isn't the why that isn't a law. So oh, you I have. So we're on the same agree. page
0: on this. Great. So, that, so let's begin with that premise, right? Young people have to know something about a country in order to be part of and proud of that country. So now let's roll this forward. I believe in, let's take a look at the status quo. Young men in this country are already required to, at pain of criminal penalty, enroll in selective service, enroll in the draft. That means you can literally go to jail if you fail to do it. Mm -hmm. I would decriminalize that. I don't think that's the American way. But what I would say instead is there's no criminal requirement to register for the draft as we do have today. That's the law of the land. But instead, at the age of 18, let's attach civic duties to civic privileges. That's what our founding fathers envisioned. You have duties as a citizen in a constitutional republic. And I say that minimal duty is either knowing something about the country, the exact same things an immigrant has to know, or else maybe tests aren't for everyone, serve the country in some minimal way, first responder role or in the military. And the reality, Margaret, and you know this well, voting rates are rock bottom in people in ages of 18 to 25 already. Why? Because it doesn't mean something. But once it means something, I have firm conviction in this. We will see voting rates skyrocket when it's not just going through the motions. And so yes, part of reaching young people isn't just pandering by telling them what in the short term they want to hear, satisfying their moral hunger by saying go, you know, what the what the left says, go to Ben and Jerry's and order a cup of ice cream with some social justice sprinkles on the side. No. That's not how we satisfy the hunger for purpose and meaning. I think the revival of actual civic duty is a big part of how we feed that hunger for purpose. At first blush, is that something that people are gonna rally behind? Probably not. But that's also how you understand that I actually mean what I'm saying. I'm not just gonna feed people what they, there's an old expression actually. If, if you care about somebody, you tell them the truth. If you care about yourself, you tell them what they want to hear. I care about the people of this country and that is why I will give them the truth.
1: You just said voting rates for, millennials are at rock bottom, or for young people is 18 rock to bottom. 25 is rock bottom. Okay, well for the 2016 cycle, 53% of 30 and unders who were eligible voted. In the last uh, 2022, the last off year election, a higher percentage of 30 and unders voted in that off-year election than the 2018 off-year election. So they're not rock bottom. They're actually higher than they have been for yeah, many specifically years. specifically
0: talking about 18 to 25, which is the zone that I'm actually, was focused on with the proposal. And I think that's a good thing, especially if it's coming with the revival of civic spirit along with it. But here's what I'm, I'm worried about. For that. Here's what I'm worried about, though. Look at some of the recent survey data. Less than 16% of Gen Z says they're even proud to be an American. Now think about this recent survey, 60% of young Americans who are on social media said they would sooner give up their right to vote than to give up their access to TikTok. So you're going to talk about attachment to those civic duties and voting. 60% of them say TikTok comes before the vote. And I'm not blaming them for it. I'm blaming us for it, right? This is the climate we've created in the country where young people do not want to serve a country that they're either taught to hate or don't know anything about. And we're not going to fix that by just armchairing this. It's going to take actual vision and actual commitments to revive that missing civic spirit, which I believe we can do, but it's our responsibility to do. But to be a citizen, a capital C citizen, that actually means that you have duties and responsibilities that come attached to it. The 14th Amendment, section one, says there are the privileges and immunities of citizenship. It particularly distinguishes citizens from persons. These things mean something to me. It means something to us. This is what defines who we are as Americans, and yet now we treat the Constitution as a flat, two-dimensional piece of paper that doesn't matter that we make a hollowed-out husk of. And that's why we wonder why we're lost as a culture. That's a good answer for why. So I think that's what we need to revive is when I say it's a 1776 moment, revive those principles enshrined in the constitution. I actually mean it. I think citizenship means something to me. And if we make it mean something to young Americans, they'll be much less drawn to secular cults from wokeism to climatism than they are today because they actually believe that the fact that they're a citizen of the United States of America actually means something to them. And it will unite the country in the process.
1: You've you've coined this term climatism. Yeah. What does it mean?
0: I think it refers to an ideology that says we have to abandon fossil fuels and carbon emissions at all cost to stave off existential climate risks for humanity. I think that is a religious conviction. It is not a scientific conviction. So I think we have to reckon with the facts to say that our global surface temperature is going up. Yes, it appears to, that's a fact.
1: Because of the emission of carbon,
0: because of broadly man-made causes, including, but not limited to the emission of carbon and also non-manmade causes. Yes. Is that an existential risk for humanity? No, it is not. Does that mean that we should abandon or even abate the use of carbon or carbon dioxide emissions? No, it does not. In my book, I think the right question we should be asking is what advances human prosperity. That's what I care about. That's what I will care about, measuring as the leader of this country, rather than obsessing over a cult of carbon.
1: When people point to the 101 degree water temperatures in Florida or the heat waves throughout the country or the uh, unparalleled storms and climate events, how do you respond?
0: I respond by saying that if the same shoe fit the other foot and you disagreed with that policy and somebody else were picking up anecdotal data from the middle of Arkansas who didn't go to Harvard, you'd be laughing them off the stage as a bunch of rubes who didn't know how to follow data based on anecdotal evidence. Do
1: you think the scientific consensus is wrong about climate change and its threat to human prosperity in the future?
0: I think the media consensus around how to synthesize the science is absolutely wrong. So the actual originators of the original observations, that's what I consider the scientific observations, are fundamentally different than the class of people who's responsible for synthesizing that information. And that's where I think we actually run awry.
1: As Florida Governor Ron DeSantis struggles in the polls, you have risen in the polls. Uh, Approximately half of Republican primary voters favor Donald Trump as their first choice candidate for the nomination. And you have started to say that you are not running against Trump, but that you are running alongside Donald Trump.
0: I'm running for this nation.
1: How do you defeat Donald Trump without contrasting yourself and making the case that Republicans should not renominate him? Look,
0: I think it's exactly in the way I just told you. We are running to something. I'm not running from something. I'm leading us to a vision of what it means to be an American and doing it while authentically respecting what Trump did for this country. I do not think that Trump's base, I'm part of that base, by the way, in 2020, Trump's 2020 base is going to come along with somebody who finds it politically convenient to bash his accomplishments when his success in that 2016 election was, I think, one of the single greatest milestones in modern American history to protect our government from an overreach that was otherwise continuing. So I respect that. But drawing a contrast, I mean, the contrasts are plenty. I'm less than half his age. I am the fresh outsider in this race. I have a clear, detailed vision to take on policy disputes, policy objectives, that he was even unwilling to touch. So those are details, but I think they're important details. But most importantly, I think respecting his legacy and doing it authentically will allow me to be more successful in winning this nomination.
1: You talk about um, the importance of citizenship and being actively engaged in the functioning of this country. But I've noticed that there are several presidential elections recently in which you haven't participated. Yes. Can you speak to that?
0: Absolutely. So in the first election that I was eligible for, I was 18 or 19 years old in 2004. I was so put off by both candidates, Bush and Kerry, that I made what was, you know, let's just call it what is a throwaway vote for the libertarian candidate in that race. I understand why young people are disaffected. I get it and I empathize with it because I was disaffected. So like many young people through most of my 20s, I was not inspired by the choices that I was given. I was disengaged. In many ways, I was disillusioned as a citizen. But I came back to it in 2020. That was when I started writing Woking. It's when I had my first son. And that's when things changed for me.
1: It's funny because an entire wave of millennials came to voting in 2008, Mm -hmm. precisely when you stopped.
0: I was disaffected at the time. Exactly. I mean, I'm not. I'm not, uh, yeah, millennials aren't yeah. all clones of each other. Yeah. For me, I was disillu- deeply disillusioned by the 2008 bailouts. And this is where I understand a lot of the struggle of my generation. I got my first job in the fall of 2007 at a finance firm on the eve of the 2008 financial crisis, right? Uh, my, my dad struggled growing up. Our family went through layoffs under Jack at GE. When I graduated from college, what, what had I been taught? What had my peers been taught? that you work hard, you take on that college debt, but you work hard and get ahead in the system of American capitalism, it works for you. Well, guess what? The firm that I joined, the industry that I joined, took a massive hit for no fault of my own. Many of my peers still haven't even repaid all of their college debt yet. Things worked out for me because I succeeded separately, but I was deeply disillusioned. That was led by Republicans, by the way, The crony capitalism of the 2008 bailouts, that came from the Republicans. Barack Obama was on the same side. And so when you look at either involvement in Iraq, you look at the actual involvement of government in banking through the bailouts that we saw, I was uninspired by the choices that I faced in a way that makes me empathize with the way other people in their 20s, just as when I was in my 20s, viewed it the same. But if I was to go back and do it again, I would tell the younger version of myself, No, 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 you have to care, because if you don't, who do you expect is gonna create that future that you expect someone to roll out for you? You And so when I got to my 30s, yes, I had a different view. You bring a son into this world, it changes your perspective. It certainly did for me, and I came back with a vengeance. Vengeance is the wrong word, but came back with a redoubled spirit to say that, you know what, all those years I was disengaged, I get it. I understand why young people are disaffected, but this is why we have to be engaged, because that is our only choice.
1: You've called for Republican candidates to pardon Trump in both of the two cases that he has been charged with. Uh, The Alan Bragg DA from Manhattan case, as well as Jack Smith's documents case from Mar-a-Lago. Recently, new charges have been added to the documents case. Trump allegedly asked for the Mar-a-Lago camera footage to be deleted after the FBI and the Justice Department visited him in 2022, asking for documents, um, in addition to new charges that he illegally held on to a document that he's alleged to shown off to visitors in New Jersey. What's clear is that the scope of Trump's legal liability is not fully known yet, even still. So why plant the flag? Why plant the pardon flag without seeing all of the evidence that prosecutors have against him?
0: So I'll give you the narrow answer and i'll give you the deeper answer the narrow answer is i did wait to read those indictments cover to cover <clears throat> before forming my view and i will not offer a view prospectively on other indictments should they come on those two indictments it was clear to me that that was politicized i can give you reasons why i've argued it on the pages of the wall street journal and i think it is a fair presumption it almost always is the case in all of u.s legal history that the worst and most damning statements of the facts and law for the defendant come in the prosecution's statement of it in an indictment. So assuming, yes, it is an unstated assumption, assuming that is true here, that that is the worst statement of the facts, which is what you always get in an indictment, then yes, based on that facts and the law as it exists, I would pardon him because I think that his behaviors did not obviously constitute a legal violation, even as stated in those indictments. That's the narrow answer. The deeper answer and the one that really moves me is that I think it will set an awful national precedent for us to become a country in which the ruling party, whoever it is, uses police power to indict its political rivals. That is the stuff of banana republics. That is not the stuff of the United States of America. I ask the question of, is anything, any step we take as a country, is that going to take us one step closer to a national divorce, which I worry deeply about. Mm -hmm. I do not want a national divorce. I want to lead a national revival. I think about the eight years that I have in office between then and the time I leave office in January of 2033, I want to revive one nation under God that is actually indivisible, where people and citizens and young people are proud of that country. Would this prosecution of a former president who currently is a front runner in a primary to be the next president? Would that take us in the right direction or the wrong direction as a country? There is no doubt in my mind that that will take us in not only a wrong, but potentially dangerous direction that will make my job of governing that much more difficult and will make the job of reuniting this country that much more difficult. That is what moves me.
1: Is there any scenario in which you believe that the officials at the Justice Department can put partisanship aside and truly administer the laws of this country apart from politics? if there were a Republican president and a Republican attorney general prosecuting Donald Trump, would that be legitimate and free from politicization in your view?
0: I don't think the real divide in this country is between Republicans and Democrats.
1: No, no, no. But answer my question. Is there any way to prosecute a former president without it being considered politicized in your view?
0: The answer would be, it wouldn't be whether it's a Republican or not. It would come down to the facts and law. It would have to be a cut and dry case that it was not testing a legal theory that was previously unadvanced, but an obvious legal theory that had been levied against defendants repeatedly on the similar sets of facts okay, and law. So and that's not that. what exists today. So, so for example, so I'll give you say- an example, right? in the doc, I'll tell you something that would change my mind. Uh-huh. If you told me in the documents case, there was new evidence that came out that Trump was selling those secrets for private financial gain to our foreign adversaries who are in a position to use that to compromise that the US, would change your that would absolutely change my position.
1: Um, you talk a lot about the Espionage Act and how you believe that it is broadly written and often sloppily applied. Yes. Uh, putting aside the Espionage Act and even putting aside the Presidential Records Act, obstruction is obstruction.
0: Yes. So regardless here's what I will of say.
1: whether there's an underlying
0: charge. Well, I will. I will share my view on this. I think it is a grave practice of prosecutorial misconduct for the Justice Department it's big becomes a misnomer to even call it the Justice Department when it becomes the habit of doing this, as they did to Flynn, where there is no underlying crime, but to use a process crime or an investigation to use as the basis for a conviction. I think that is a dangerous path in its own right. Yeah, but that's and something we've seen about from the Justice Department against a countless range of other defendants, not just Trump. But
1: obstruction is breaking the law.
0: Obstruction is breaking the law. But if for the same reason that entrapment, right, entrapment would cause someone to- Okay, but we're make, not talking about entrapment well, but, but it's a species of-
1: the FBI asked for documents and then he potentially destroyed camera evidence of him not giving over those documents.
0: So this gets into deep constitutional doctrine, which I'm happy to do. It's a doctrine known as the fruit of the poisonous tree, right? We have a strong tradition in this country that says when the government misbehaves, but unearths evidence, this is what the fruit of the poisonous tree doctrine is all about unearths evidence that was the product of a misplaced investigation in the first place. It shows up in many places in the law that that's illicit. It's improper. In this particular case, I think it's a form of prosecutorial abuse. The way you're supposed to prosecute somebody in this, the way our founding fathers envisioned it deeply ingrained in the legal tradition of this country is that there is an actual act that breaks the law, and then you bring the person who committed to justice, not that you pick the person and then find the violation. Okay. And I think that whether it's with Trump or countless other defendants in recent years, it's the latter approach that the U.S. Department of Justice has used. And I have a fundamental problem with it as somebody who okay. believes in not just the letter, but the spirit of the Constitution.
1: I, I hear your passion, and you've redirected the question and the answer. From I have not. Actually, I'm answering your question. From actually... The, the circumstances of President Trump's obstruction. Bill Barr read the same indictment that you read and that I read and that America has read and called it damning. So you two just have a difference of opinion. I'm not sure health. we
0: do. I'd have to talk to Bill on that. Uh, maybe we do, maybe we don't. You called been very, it damning. Well, I have been very, you don't
1: think it's damning?
0: I have said it is not the basis for a legal conviction. What I have also said at every step, I'll remind you, Margaret, I'm in this race for US president, in the same race that Donald Trump is in for a reason, I would have made different judgments than Trump made in each of those instances, very different judgments. But I think there is a fundamental difference between a bad judgment, which is an issue for the voters, to take into account as they wish to, where we the people decide who leads the country, versus using criminal procedures to eliminate someone from competition in that election and eliminating the ability of the voters to make that decision for themselves.
1: Um, Bill Barr said the idea that it is a witch hunt is ridiculous. But at what point does this go beyond bad judgment to willfully defying the law?
0: When it actually involves a clear breakage of the law. Like I said, If Trump was selling those secrets to a foreign adversary for private gain at the expense of the public, my view on this completely changes. But as measured, and I've explained this at length, unprecedented length for a presidential candidate to go into the legal detail that I have, in both instances on the pages of the Wall Street Journal and elsewhere, making the case for why these indictments, both of them. It's interesting how even people aren't talking about the Alvin Bragg indictment because it was such an embarrassing indictment. We can't view the other indictments through a lens that ignores the existence of that one because both are symptoms of what I think is a philosophy of saying there's the man, throw the books at him, as opposed to saying there's a violation of the law, let's hold accountable the person who was. I think there's a pretty big
1: difference between a a politically elected DA in Manhattan. Who pledged
0: pledged to actually... and, and,
1: And a Department of Justice appointee who has a strong record of being apolitical and upholding the law in Jack Smith. But let me just ask you this question. If President Trump were to be convicted by a jury of his peers in Florida, a jury pool that is much more likely to be sympathetic to Donald Trump than not. Would you still feel the need to pardon him?
0: I would, because it would be important to move this country forward. As I said, if the facts are dramatically different, we're talking about selling secrets to foreign adversaries, which, by the way, there's no basis to think that if there was even any basis, it would have found its way into that indictment. But if there were, right, for example, I would change my judgment on that. But on these facts, there's no doubt that I will pardon Donald Trump because I think that's the right thing for the country. Okay. And that's my job as president is to ask what is right for this nation. And there's no doubt in my mind that'll be the right answer.
1: Um, You have called the potential indictment of Donald Trump around January 6th, quote, a dangerous precedent for the political weaponization of police power in this country. If prosecutors have evidence of the former president committing crimes in an effort to overturn a free and fair election, isn't that also a dangerous precedent? not to hold that person accountable?
0: There's a lot baked into your question. You use the word crimes. So if there are evidence of actually committing crimes, then that's a different question. So
1: would you be in favor of a prosecution if there is evidence of crimes?
0: I have seen nothing in the no, public no, domain. That's a so hypothetical. If, it, if there I were mean, crimes, I would you support I would say it? If there are clear evidence in support of a crime, I always support accountability. But okay. the question is, it begs the question of, was there a crime? Yeah. And that's, I think, the question at issue in the Alvin Bragg indictment, where I believe there is not. That is the issue in the documents case because of the Presidential Records Act. I think there is not evidence. But of you a don't crime.
1: think obstruction is a crime?
0: Well, I think that there's if there's a crime, that's the consequence of an unjust investigation. We're back to fruit of the poisonous tree. I but, do not no, no, believe no, no, that's
1: in, a slippery slope.
0: I do not believe in convicting people for process crimes where the underlying crime was non existent. That's just a philosophy. Whether it's but Trump that, or not,
1: that's not true. Obstruction is obstruction regardless of whether there's an underlying crime or not. But I do
0: not believe that that is a just. Okay, but that is not what the law
1: says. It's not a matter of what you believe. It's just not what the law says. Well, if there's obstruction, it's obstruction regardless of whether there's an underlying
0: crime. Well, the question is actually whether or not the, actually, I think that's, that's actually up for dispute. If there's no evidence of an underlying crime, it's the, it's the fruit of the poisonous tree doctrine that's in it, the way it, I okay, see it.
1: Okay, okay, well, that, you see it very differently than many prosecutors In the prosecutors same way as if, if there's a- Than many if there's, prosecutors see it. Let's no go doubt back to this. That.
0: I do have a different view, but as the leader, as the US president, it will be my job. I believe the Department of Justice does report to the US president. There's one executive branch. So I'm sharing with you the constitutional vision that I'll bring to the White House, which is my job.
1: Okay. After January 6th, you were critical of Donald Trump's conduct. But you also maintain that January 6th's riots at the Capitol were not his fault. You have said that censorship by big tech companies contributed. Help me understand, are you saying that if Donald Trump hadn't spent two months promoting baseless election fraud conspiracy theories and encouraging his supporters to show up and march on the Capitol on January 6th, the riots still would have happened anyway.
0: That was the final catalyst. It was not the cause. The underlying cause was the frustration of people across this country. And I said this at the time, in the days after January 6th, I wrote an op-ed in the pages of the Wall Street Journal explaining exactly why systematic censorship was a dangerous precedent in this country that would portend far worse than January 6th unless we reckoned with it. it. comes back to that basic principle. Our founding fathers understood it. Free speech is a precondition for peace in this country. You tell people they cannot speak, that they have to shut up, sit down, do as they're told. That is when they scream. You tell them they can't do that. That is when they tear things down. This came after a year, I'll remind you, right? This is now further and further back. It's important to understand Exactly what happened in 2020, people across this country were told to stay locked down in their homes unless they were of a particular political persuasion, Antifa or BLM, for in which case it was fine for them to burn down streets from Portland to cities in Wisconsin to Chicago. You were told that you had to take a vaccine that was developed in record time, even when normally you can't take a vaccine for 10 years. You were told that if you said the virus originated in a lab in Wuhan, you were racist and had your social media accounts locked. You were then told there's an election where you get to express yourself. But on the eve of that election, the most damning story about one of the two candidates in that election, Joe Biden, was systematically suppressed by every major technology company that we now know to be true. So that pent up frustration, yes, boiled over on January 6th. But my concern, Margaret, is if we haven't actually addressed that underlying problem and cause yet. It will as yet still boil over in other ways that we are yet to see. Do
1: you think that Trump is addressing those underlying concerns or do you think that he is aggravating them?
0: I am in this race because I am best positioned to address those underlying concerns. Margaret- Was and I, he I, we,
1: right? You say it wasn't his fault, but was he right to galvanize those frustrations for Mar- two Margaret, months before- Margaret, I'm happy
0: he to, I'm happy to continue talking about this. I'm not a political commentator. I'm a candidate for U.S. president looking to lead this nation in a race where Donald Trump but is running. But you're running,
1: running against Donald Trump? Yes, and we spent, Trump.
0: we spent 30 minutes uh, talking about Donald Trump when we, I, I would prefer, although I'm open to talking about it if you want, you're the questioner, I would prefer to talk about our vision for the nation. I would have made dramatically different judgments than Trump did. Were Trump's judgments that he made in the lead up to January 6th good for this country? No. With with respect. And is the judgment of Joe Biden to bring a prosecution against him on any count that matters through Jack Smith, the veiled special prosecutor, a good judgment? No. I would make different judgments than either of them, than both of them, because we have to prioritize the interests of this nation. That is why I'm in this race.
1: Yeah, with respect. The reason that we're talking about what Donald Trump did right or wrong is because you've opined about it and he is leading in the polls. And so I'm trying to draw out a contrast and understand what responsibility you feel he has for the violence that happened that day.
0: I don't think he's legally responsible for the violence that day. I do believe that we have to ask ourselves who is going to lead us further in the direction of a national revival rather than a national divorce. And I am best positioned to do it because Here's the difference. I think we go further as a country when we do it based on first principles and moral authority, not just vengeance and grievance. That is what I'm bringing to the table.
1: At a town hall in May, you suggested that Robert Kennedy Jr. would be somebody you would consider as a vice presidential candidate on your ticket. Um, RFK, as you know- uh,
0: Can I just say a word about that?
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. Somebody
0: asked me, would I be open to considering him? And in the spirit of actually openness, absolutely. I will keep an open mind, Republican, Democrat, independent, it doesn't matter. I just wanna be very clear. He's not seriously on my short list for VP, which we have since developed as we're we're running in the election. He's not on my short list for VP.
1: This is a man who has suggested that COVID-19 could be ethnically targeted against white and Black people. And he suggested that Ashkenazi Jews and Chinese are more immune to them. He has linked mass shootings to Prozac. He blames autism on vaccines. And he thinks Republicans stole the 2004 election. Is this someone who would actually have a position in a Ramaswamy administration?
0: He's not on the short list for any of our cabinet positions. And one of the things that we've already begun to do, by the way, as we published a couple weeks ago, our list of federal judges is put together our transition plan. Now, what I do want to say about RFK is that I respect the fact that he's elevating debate within the Democratic Party. I think our nation is at its best when the Republican Party and the Democratic Party are both both the best versions of themselves. And I think that frankly, the Democratic Party is going to be better off for having had him in their primary. I think they would be even better off if they actually had a primary debate for it. His commitments to issues like free speech, his commitments to issues that I share a deep passion for, the weaponization of the financial system to accomplish backdoor political objectives. Those are things I respect because he's speaking to a group of people in his party that make him a minority voice. And anybody who has the courage to speak truth to power in their own institutions, that's an element I respect, even though there's a lot of what he's said from climate policy to affirmative action to otherwise that I deeply disagree with him on. I would be willing to engage in open debate with him over the course of this election if he were willing to do the same. That would be good for this country too. But that's the sense in which I respect him as somebody who practices free speech and is a free speech advocate. But as I said, as we're planning our transition, he is not on my shortlist for any position in the administration. Okay,
1: your proposal to end the war in Ukraine. Yes. Uh, many say would embolden Putin. I recognize that your goal is to disrupt the ties between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin and the um, unlimited pact that they have made with one another between yes. Russia and China. But if the US were to withdraw military support from Ukraine, cede the Donbas region, to Russia and pledge not to admit Ukraine into NATO, Putin would be rewarded for his aggression. Wouldn't the defeat of Putin actually best be the way to rupture the no limits pact between China and Russia rather than giving Putin what he wants?
0: No, I don't think so. And I think that this is an area where we have deep seated disagreement even within the Republican party on this question. So
1: explain why this wouldn't embolden Putin.
0: I don't think that whether this would embolden Putin or not is is even the right first question to ask. The right first question to ask is what advances American interests? The top military threat we face is the Russia-China alliance. Our top adversary today is communist China. It's not 1980 anymore. It is not the USSR. And I think a big part of the problem is that we have failed in our post-Cold War policy As, by the way, George Kennan, before his death, observed, he was the chief architect of Cold War deterrence. The way I think about my foreign policy vision is really in the tradition of a George Kennan or a James Baker, a Cold War realist who recognizes that nations act in their calculated self-interest, not in how they're judged. And so, no, I do not think it should be a U.S. policy objective to defeat Vladimir Putin or drive regime change in Russia. I think the top goal of the U.S. should be to ensure peace and security for Americans for most. And that happens when we have peace and stability on the global stage. So in return for the things that I would give as concessions to Putin, and it's just a fact, in any deal, everybody has to come out of that deal with something. We get more out of that trade if russia pulls out of its military alliance with china that's a big win for us and other conditions i've also said i would require removing the nuclear weapons from kaliningrad the strip of russia that borders poland exiting any military presence that russia has in the western hemisphere cuba venezuela nicaragua these are much bigger wins for u.s security than what does or does not happen in the donbas region which by the way is a part of ukraine where separatists within Ukraine or Russian-speaking populations that have more of an affinity for Russia than they do for Ukraine. I also do not believe that Ukraine is some model paragon of democracy. It is not. This is a nation that has eliminated, banned 11 opposition parties, has one consolidated state media arm, has a record of corruption that's arguably even worse than Russia. And so I think that the idea that we're retrofitting this into a battle between good and evil is just fundamentally incorrect, which means we have to look at this As realists, what advances American interests? And the last thing I would say, Margaret, is I believe that Putin acts in his self-interest. I don't trust Vladimir Putin. I trust Vladimir Putin to follow his self-interest. And so if we're reopening economic relations with Russia, as I believe we should, I think it was a mistake for us, and I think it was us, to shoot down the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines. I think we can rebuild that. I think that that would give Putin less of a reason to be in Xi Jinping's court. To the contrary, I worry that we are driving Russia closer into China's hands and China is now coming to Russia's aid. And I'll make this prediction now. I think if we continue on the current course of dripping money into Ukraine to support this war, Russia has greater national interests at stake there than we do. This will not end well. Ukraine will in any measure lose this war as they would themselves define it with 200, maybe $300 billion of US military equipment left in Ukraine for what will then likely be a post Zelensky regime that repeats Afghanistan post the Soviet invasion in the 1980s all over again. And that is not a mistake I want to see us repeat.
1: I've I've heard you say that before and I want to get back to it, but you just said you believe it was the United States that shot down the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipeline. What evidence do you have to say that?
0: The combination of leaks reported through the Washington Post and elsewhere in the government combined with the actual shifting positions vis-a-vis Ukraine, combined with the fact that actually Biden lied, the Biden White House lied, first when they were informed of even Ukrainian intentions or plans to do it, saying that initially when they said that it was actually potentially a Russian deflection, Biden had been briefed long before that to know that it was potentially an intention and objective of Ukraine to do the same. So So when the government lies, I think that the totality of facts, if you asked me based on the circumstances we have, I think. The most likely explanation is that the US had a hand in bombing the Nord Stream 1 and 2.
1: You just mentioned earlier, you mentioned George Kennan and you mentioned deterrence as a policy. Uh, I mentioned that he was the chief architect of Cold War War Deterrence. deterrence. Um, But
0: now that applies to China is the answer.
1: Right, so that's my follow-up question. It is, (laughs) if if we were to follow your plan vis-a-vis Ukraine and Russia, what message would China take away? And how, how would that plan sure. deter China from then invading Taiwan? So
0: the consensus view is what's baked into your question, Margaret, which is that Xi Jinping will make his judgment based on how he is perceived on the global stage and the message he receives. When I say I'm in the tradition of James Baker and George Kennan, I understand deeply, as I believe that they did, that that's not how autocrats make their decisions. How is it it's based on Russia hard deterring power. China? <clears throat> so here's how. The answer is, Right now, Xi Jinping believes that the U.S. won't want to go to war with two allied nuclear superpowers, Russia and China, at the same time. Russia has the largest nuclear stockpile in the world. Russia has hypersonic missile capabilities ahead of both the U.S. and China. China has a larger naval fleet than the U.S. does, including in the South China Sea and an economy that we depend on for our modern way of life. So Xi Jinping's bet is that with Russia in his camp, he's in a strong position should he want to invade Taiwan. If Russia is no longer in his camp, and there are other pieces of this for me too, if India's back on sides with the U.S. and he can't rely on the Indian Ocean for the Middle Eastern oil supplies, then Xi Jinping will have to think twice before going after Taiwan. That is how we deter communist China from going after Taiwan while avoiding war over it in the South China Sea, while another one fell swoop, ending the war in Ukraine and pulling American resources back. That's realist foreign policy, not the foreign policy neoconservative dogma that now pervades, frankly, both political parties. I'm the only person in either party that has offered an actual clear vision of how we end the Ukraine war on terms that advance American interests. I view this through the prism of China and our adversarial relationship with China. And I do think that this will secure peace for Americans and advance American interests.
1: Um, You came to prominence with your critiques of woke capitalism. You wrote a book, Woke Inc., um, and then New York referred to you as the CEO of Anti-Woke Inc. Explain what woke capitalism is.
0: Sure, so I'll start with what wokeism is. It is a worldview that says that your identity is based on your race, your gender, your sexual orientation, or other genetically inherited attributes, that we, we are either oppressors or oppressed based on those genetic characteristics and that it is our obligation to reorder those injustices and social relationships. Woke capitalism is the extension of using capitalism, commerce, as a means to address those injustices, racial injustice and climate change. I think that this is a mistake on two counts. One is I think it actually leads companies to be less successful over the long run. Milton Friedman made that case. I've made a revised case of it in my book. Europe actually followed what they referred to as the multi-stakeholder model for most of the last century. If you look at the total stock market returns in Europe compared to the U.S., where the U.S. followed shareholder primacy and value maximization as the model, we won that difference. The, the performance of companies in the U.S., total stock market returns speak for themselves. But Margaret, that's not even my main reason for being against it. My main reason for being against this trend of stakeholder capitalism, what you could also refer to as woke capitalism, is that It is a perversion of how a constitutional republic, a democratic society is supposed to work. We fought a revolution in this country in 1776 to say that we the people settle our differences through free speech and open debate in the public square where your and my vote count equally. What the model of stakeholder capitalism calls for is to say that no, 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 we the people can't be trusted to sort out our differences on climate change or on social justice but that we have to actually trust an enlightened group of elites. In the old world, in the back of palace halls in England. In the new world, in the back of palace halls on the Park Avenue headquarters of BlackRock, to determine for the rest of society what the right answers are to those questions using commerce as a vehicle to do it. And so you wanna talk about threats to democracy? I think that's pretty high on the list, actually. And that's been the source of my criticism over the last several years.
1: Um, And your arguments against, well, capitalism. You have cited uh, the writings of economist Milton Friedman. Friedman appeared several times on the original firing line with William F. Buckley, oh, Jr. did Yeah, yeah. Take a look.
0: We have an overblown, overgrown government spending 40, uh, more than 40% of our income uh, supposedly for our benefit, mostly waste, and mostly restricting our freedom. And as a result, we have
1: destroyed a sense of individual responsibility and responsibility to one another. It, no, now everybody takes it for granted that if there's a problem, the government's going to take care of it. So Fre- Friedman there is talking about how government crowds out yes the civic space and the social space. But you write in your book, Woke Inc., how also capitalism has inherently invasive qualities, and you argue that the answer is to quote build protective walls around the things we cherish most, like democracy.
0: I think it's actually deeply aligned with Milton Friedman's view is is. that there's different spheres of our lives. Mm -hmm. There's the sphere of our lives in our constitutional republic where we express ourselves as citizens. There's spheres of our lives where we express ourselves as capitalists, as business owners, as entrepreneurs to make products and services that we sell for a higher price than it costs for us to provide them, thereby creating value for shareholders. We have religious spaces in our lives where we believe in God, that we call on our inner faith to believe in something bigger than our, just our humanity here on this earth. And I think that our family unit is the same separate sphere. So I think part of what we've lost in our country is the integrity of each of those spheres of our lives. And part of the reason why is we've blurred the boundaries between them. One of those boundaries we've blurred is between our civic space and our space as capitalists. And I think that, you know, as I said in one of my my, one of my books, we don't want democracy and capitalism to share the same bed. What we actually need is a clean divorce. And I think that will revive the integrity of both capitalism and our democratic republic.
1: Uh, You mentioned faith. Um, You are a Hindu. You're competing for the Republican nomination in Iowa where caucus goers self-identify by 64% as evangelical Christians. One pro-Trump teacher in Nebraska said in a recent sermon that you would put, quote, strange gods up in the White House. How do you respond to that?
0: I think that he does not represent anywhere near a majority or even a plurality of Christians in this country. He's entitled to his view. The beauty of our country is that we do allow people to express themselves and he has a right to do that. But I do not think that he speaks for even a meaningful tiny fraction of the people I've met in states like Iowa and across the country. I think the real divide in this country is not between those who are evangelical Christian versus Catholic versus Jewish versus Hindu. As we're talking about faith, I think it's actually about people who even believe in God and people who abandon God. And I think those who abandon God have often, at least, a hole in their heart where if God doesn't fill it, something else will instead. That's where you get secular religions. That's where you get depression, anxiety, suicide, fentanyl, wokeism, climatism. We could debate what fills that void. That's, I think, the deeper issue. And so in many ways, the fact that I am a staunch defender of religious liberty, and I do believe there is an assault on Christians in particular in this country right now, the fact that I am a little bit different than other candidates, younger, first generation American. You're right. I'm a Hindu. Put me in a position to even be a more effective, staunch defender of the principles of religious liberty than somebody else who might get dismissed as a Christian nationalist. And so that there's others who disagree with me on that. That's fine. He's entitled to his opinion, but I'm not running to be pastor of his church. I'm running to be president of this nation. And yes, I did grow up in a family and in an upbringing that shares those Judeo-Christian values that this nation was founded on. Yes, I share those deeply. My job as a candidate is to tell the people who I am, what I stand for, to say it transparently and honestly. I believe one of the things that politicians believe is the people can't handle the truth. No, I believe we, the people, can handle the truth. Whether that's what the people want, that's their choice, not mine the fact that we're doing as well as we are this early on surging suggests to me that that honesty might be the most important part of it.
1: How does your faith inform you?
0: My faith informs the way I view the world, right? It is my belief in God tells me that God put me here, put all of us here for a reason, that there is more to life than just the aimless passage of time that we have to accomplish much, do our duty in the short time that we're given. One of the core precepts of my faith, drawn from the Vedic tradition, is to speak truth and do your duty. It's actually one of the north stars of of the faith tradition I was raised in. Turns out, I think that is also woven into the fabric of this nation. Speak truth, do your duty. It's actually some of the famous letters between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. John Adams actually became a scholar of the Vedas himself. He became a Sanskrit scholar in his post-presidential life. And I think that, Our founding fathers understood deeply those actual principles. One of the things that's I think happened in the present in the struggles of modern social media informed red versus blue, black versus white white superficial infighting is that we've almost forgotten what those values were. People say the words Judeo-Christian values. How about we talk about what those values actually are? Because that's what I care about. And that's a big part of what I'm doing in this race. And I think that is why it is landing with religious audiences, including evangelical and Christian audiences. That's part of what we're gonna need to drive our national revival is make sure God isn't a four letter word in our culture anymore, that we revive faith without apology. I think if more people did embrace their faith, I don't think we'd be nearly as divided as we are as a country, which says that that's exactly the direction we need to go rather than to run from.
1: Vivek Ramaswamy, thank you for joining me here at Firing Line.
0: Thank you, good to see you.